God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we're going to be talking about logical and rational arguments. What are they? How do they work? How do you make rational? How do you make logical arguments? And what kind of logical fallacies are involved with making arguments? The goal of this podcast is really to get people to start thinking, you know, how are they structuring their arguments? How are they going to refute arguments of people who are arguing against them? How can they tell if those arguments by their opponents are true arguments, if they're rational arguments, and what are particular flaws that these arguments might be carrying with them? Even in our own logic structures, when we're making arguments, if our arguments could be easily undermined by logical fallacies, then we better stay away from those types of arguments and focus on the more solid arguments. So trying to get down to what a basic argument is, usually you start with some sort of premise, and then you add some sort of inference from that premise, and then you add some sort of conclusion. I'll give you a basic argument here. All cats are mammals. Boots is a cat. Therefore, Boots is a mammal. You see how that works, and that's pretty rational, because if all cats are mammals and Boots is a cat, then Boots, by definition, has to be part of the mammal subset because boots is just a smaller subset in this larger subset of cats and all cats are the mammals. So just sticking with this example, there's various ways to attack this sort of rational argument. You could attack the premise. You could say, well, not all cats are in fact mammals because I got this uh, geopet or something like that or this Tamagotchi unit where there's this digital cat and that cat's just just uh, something on the screen that's uh, generated by some sort of computer. You know, you could try to attack the premise and say the premise isn't necessarily true. And the other person could come back and say you're taking the definition of cat wrong or that's just a simulated cat and that's not an actual cat. And so there could be a counter argument to that undermining of the premise. But if that premise goes, if that premise is destroyed, then you can't hold valid the conclusion. The conclusion still might be true. Boots still might be a mammal, but the inferences, they just don't hold because the premise from which you are making those inferences just doesn't work with faulty premises. So I drive a gray Honda. And so if someone says all Hondas are gray, you own a Honda, therefore your Honda is gray. Well, my Honda does in fact turn out to be gray, but just because it's gray doesn't make their premise correct, and I could dispute that premise. And without that premise, their inference cannot be made, and you'd have to have some other reason to believe that my Honda is gray in order to hold that as a valid truth. You might incorrectly get to the correct truth. So that's important. Just because a premise is false doesn't necessarily make the conclusion false. But it does give you reason to believe that you're, you need better arguments if you're going to come to that conclusion. So I was on this Christian group, and this guy posts this inflammatory post. This is a new poster I've never seen before. And he posts and he says, you know, discrimination and bigotry is wrong. When Christians attack homosexuals or something like that, that just makes Christians bigots, and we shouldn't be bigots. So thinking about this, what's this guy's premise? This guy's premise is bigotry and discrimination are wrong. Well, is that true? And so I questioned him on that. Well, is, is bigotry against child molesters wrong? Is bigotry against people who have sex with animals? Is that wrong? Is it wrong to have prejudice against thieves and murderers and stuff like that? Are you going to treat them differently because of who they are? Are you going to invite these guys into your house? Or are you going to show some prejudice when you interact with these types of people? 
You see what that does? That undermines his premise because his premise no longer stands. So either he could say, no, we shouldn't show any prejudice against child rapists and people who have sex with animals. And then he looks really weird and evil, stuff like that, because no one likes to think about that sort of stuff. Nobody likes these child molesters. And no one's going to jump in and try to defend these guys. So even if this guy wanted to defend those types of people, he wouldn't because it's just socially unacceptable. But that point right there undermines his entire premise that bigotry and discrimination is de facto wrong in itself. And so how do you think they responded to this? Well, he didn't respond directly to this exactly, but another guy did. And his comment was liked by the original poster, so he kind of agreed with it. He said, Oh, you're trying to compare homosexuals to child rapists and murderers? Yes, that's how analogies work. That's how you figure out if someone's premise holds, you subject it to any variable you can imagine, and then you see if it holds for all cases, or if the original poster has to post a more nuanced view. Because if they can't post a more nuanced view in light of these things that they can't explain, then their premise is faulty. And remember, just because someone's premise is faulty does not make their conclusions invalid. So it might well be the case that we should not discriminate against homosexuals, but you can't get there from the premise that it's wrong to discriminate. Because obviously it's not wrong to discriminate. We couldn't function in society if we did not discriminate. And I threw out the example also. I was like, I bet you're going to discriminate if I pushed in front of you a glass of chlorine and a glass of water. You're not going to treat them equally. You're going to discriminate against the one that's going to kill you if you drink it. People who don't discriminate aren't going to survive very long at all. So the original poster, now that their premise has been discredited, they could either revise that premise into a more palatable premise, a premise that actually works with the same inference and conclusion, or they could try to revamp a new argument as to why their conclusion is true. So what does this guy do? Naturally, he's going to just revamp his premise just a little bit. And he threw out a new premise. And he said that the difference is that there's victims in one and there's not victims in the other. And so his new premise is discrimination against things which there are no victims. That is wrong. And then Christians would be wrong to discriminate against those types of things. So now what we have to do is we have to find variables that fit his new definition, his new premise, and see if that still holds. And so what do I do? I go back to my original statement. You know, sex with animals, animals try to have sex with people all the time. There's no victim usually in animal sex cases. Then I throw out the example. There's a curious example in Germany where there's these two cannibals and they agree to like eat one another and stuff like that. So mutually acceptable cannibalism is uh, one thing. Should we discriminate against that or we should, should we say, oh, go ahead, go do that, you know? Then I threw out the very funny example. I said, should we discriminate against Christians who think homosexuality is wrong? Because where's the victim? Unless there's some sort of action that creates a victim, it's okay to think that homosexuals are sinful and that has no effect on the outside world. So is it okay to discriminate against those people? Because that guy, he came to the forum in a very hypocritical way. And he, if he was to answer that question, he would just be exposed for his hypocrisy. 
And so what does this guy do? And this is very typical of irrational people. They withdraw from the discussion rather than revamping their premise in order to be more intelligible, to fit all examples, to have something that universally holds. He can't formulate a premise that holds in all situations to lead to the conclusion that discrimination against homosexuals is wrong. So this is what I love about that conversation and challenging people's premises. Do you know if I think that discrimination against homosexuals, do I think that's right or wrong? There's no real way to tell. I mean, you could guess that I think it's okay because I'm trying to debate the point. But sometimes I try to debate people's premises and their inferences, even though I agree with the conclusions. A recent example of this is a friend posted on their Facebook wall, there was this meme, and the meme was against $15 minimum wage. And the point of the meme was that our soldiers make less than $15 an hour, so why do the people who work at McDonald's deserve $15 an hour? And I spent a lot of my time going into soldier pay to try to show that that statistic was wildly off. And soldiers, a two-year career soldier in the Marines being like an E4, is going to be making more like $30 an hour when you monitorize all the benefits and stuff like that. So I totally agree with the conclusion of the meme that a $15 minimum wage is a bad thing. And we know this from basic econ, that if you set a price floor, any wages that can't clear above that cost are just not going to be part of the labor market. And it causes unemployment among the least skilled people in wherever the minimum wage is implemented. So minimum wages cause unemployment and hurt the people that they're trying to help. This is basic econ. And so I agree with the conclusion of the meme, but the, the inferences, the premises of the meme, were totally off. And so because I'm here trying to correct the basic statistics in the meme, everyone thinks that I'm arguing for a $15 minimum wage. No, it doesn't hold. Just because a premise is wrong, that tells you nothing really about the conclusion, whether the conclusion is true or false. Remember, those are independent of the premise. So I'll do this with open theists as well. If an open theist makes a bad argument, I'll try to step in and I'll say, you know, that's a bad argument for these reasons, and that's probably why we shouldn't make that argument. And then hopefully I could offer a better argument in its place, something like that. But proffering a bad argument for a good conclusion is counterproductive to someone communicating the truth to others. Because if other people, if they learn your faulty arguments and reach those conclusions by the faulty arguments, when those faulty arguments are overturned by someone with a little bit of knowledge, you know, a lot of times those conclusions fall with the premises, even though the conclusion might be true. So it's very important to build our houses on solid ground rather than shifting sand. So another thing we could do instead of attacking the premise is we could attack the inference. Someone says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the good and the evil. You know, I might accept that premise. Then they might say, that means God knows everything, and that means God's omniscient of all future events. Look at those inferences there. Are those inferences valid inferences? We've talked about this first before in our podcasts. No, it's not a valid inference. Often, eyes of the Lord are used for angels, and so angels watching the good and bad actually is an argument against omniscience. And also, this is a verse about watching people's actions. So, it kind of assumes the future is not set. And third of all, 
you know, this is about watching people's actions. This is not watching bears on some remote island or just rocks in at the bottom of the ocean where there's no life or something like that. This is about watching people. So coming to a conclusion about omniscience of all present events or future events, that is wildly off base. Just like with premises, just because an inference might be false does not make the conclusion true or false. And so God's omniscience doesn't rise or fall based on this one verse. And you'll actually often hear that in Christian circles. And if you say, this verse is not about God controlling all things. This verse is not about God knowing all things. They'll say, oh, you don't believe God has power to do things? Oh, you don't believe God knows all things? No, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying the verse that you're using as your evidence is not evidence. And so if you want to present different evidence, we could hear that different evidence, but your inferences are invalid. That doesn't speak at all what I believe about your conclusions. That's just about your inferences and your steps of logic where you're reaching your conclusions. So you need to formulate better arguments. And the last thing we could do is attack conclusions. And usually you could just show the conclusions are wrong through just stating some sort of premise that's mutually accepted. So someone says, the Bible's true, the Bible says God knows everything, therefore God knows all future events. And then you go and they, you show them examples of God regretting something he's done, changing his mind, wishing he had not done that thing. You know, you're attacking their conclusion. So what that conclusion forces into the equation is somewhere in their steps of logic, either their premise is wrong or their inference is wrong. And they have to go back and they have to recalculate or challenge your challenge of their conclusion. Myself, I don't like challenging conclusions directly unless I have to because it's easier just to go back and show them in their steps of logic where they were off in either their premise or their inference. So then you're just taking out the middleman and not forcing them to go recalculate based on your objection to their conclusion. So I was at this Bible study and the Bible study was over the book of Job and the Bible study was with a bunch of college students and we're talking about the dynamics of what's going on here. And the book of Job presents a situation in which Satan or an angel of God is making a bet with God or a gentleman's wager. And it's on this outcome whether Job is going to be faithful or not. And so I point this out to the group that Satan and God are engaging in a bet about the future. And one of the girls, she, she speaks up and she says, well, that can't be right because that would mean God doesn't know the future. So then I looked at her and I kind of tapped my nose to her and she's just sitting there in this perplexed state of shock because that's something she's never considered and didn't even know that anyone ever believed. But notice what she was doing. She was uh, challenging a conclusion, a conclusion that here's what the text says and, you know, it suggests that this is a bet about future actions. And it's pretty straightforward in the text. And you have to try to do gymnastics to try to get around this being some sort of wager about a future unknown outcome. And so she tried to challenge the conclusion. And she did it through a fallacy known as the moralistic fallacy. And moralistic fallacy is very important, especially in the open theist debate, because it's something that Christians often strongly depend on. They put their faith in this moralistic fallacy to carry them through various arguments. And the moralistic fallacy is this. The moralistic fallacy is conflating what we want to be true with what is true. A good example of this in our minimum wage discussion is the people who think that just 
implementing a government mandated minimum wage will increase all those workers to that wage without adverse consequences. This is magical thinking. Thinking that things are just magically the way we want them to be. So when people say to me, oh, that can't be true because then God wouldn't be good, or that can't be true because then God wouldn't be such and such a way. Yeah, I'm unimpressed by that argument because that's a fallacy of logic. There might be things in this universe that we don't like, and our like or dislike of something has no effect on the truth value of that thing. It just doesn't. So what are some good ways to counter premises and inferences and conclusions? Counterexamples are the best way. And counterexamples work best on things that aren't generalities. If someone has a premise and their premise is all boys are over six feet tall, all you have to do is show one boy who's under six feet tall and you have destroyed their entire premise. And this is great because Calvinists often deal in absolutes. They'll say God is immutable. But then the Bible in John it says God became flesh. It became as a change word. Literally, there was a debate in which Will Duffy got a Calvinist to say, that's the only change that I've agreed ever happened. Well, even if there's one change, it undermines your entire absolute statement. Your absolute statement is not absolute anymore. God is no longer immutable if he has any change in any sense whatsoever. If God is to be omniscient, even one thing that God does not know undoes his omniscience. So let's take the open theist premise. They might say, God can know what he wants to know. And how is a Calvinist going to disprove that? They're not going to show examples of God knowing things, because that's what the open theists say, God can know things. They're not going to show it either through showing things that God does not know, because the open theist could claim that that's just part of the subset of things that God did not want to know. So what the Calvinist needs to do is find some sort of statement that is directly tailored to the way the premise is phrased. They're going to have to find something that God wants to know, but God does not know. And here's a tip to any Calvinist that's trying to listen on to this podcast. Just throw out God's testing of the hearts, because God often in the Bible wants to know what's in someone's heart, and so he tests them to know what's in their heart. So throw that out to open theists, see how they deal with it, and hopefully open theists could get on the same page with, how hearts actually operate, and if God can just see into the heart as if the heart's some sort of like mechanical mechanism, something like that. So, Calvinists, please challenge open theists and try to get open theists to refine their beliefs. But here's a good place to talk about the two quoki fallacy. And this is means you two in Latin, and it basically functions just like that. So if a Calvinist comes to an open theist and says, I don't think you think that God's omniscient. You don't think that God knows all current things because in the Bible, God tests people to know what's in their heart. And you say that you accept the text and you kind of just ignore that and skip that. If the open theist were to turn around and say, well, you do the same thing being a Calvinist, yet you believe in omniscience, that's that two-quote key fallacy. And it's a fallacy because multiplying problems doesn't fix the problem. Bruce Ware does this in his book. He says, all oh, these open theists, they care a lot about taking the text at face value. But there's this incident in Genesis 18 where God says, I'm going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah to see if the reports that I heard about Sodom and Gomorrah actually are true. And so what Norman Geisler is trying to do here is say, 
that, uh, you know, we all care about the text, but we all want to just ignore this part of it. So let's shake hands and agree to ignore this, and then let's just agree to ignore your other proof text together, and we'll just pretend these problems don't exist with our theology. But that doesn't address the open theist criticism of Calvinism, that Calvinism is dismissive of the text. It remains dismissive of the text, and the problem doesn't magically go away if open theists are hypocrites. This is Norman Geisler's response to open theists criticizing the way that Calvinists interpret the Bible. Ware's response does not answer the open theist objections, and it's distracting from the open theist objections and trying to silence them based on shame or something like that. So it's not a rational argument. For the sake of this podcast, I'm going to call Bruce Ware an irrational person. Bruce Ware is irrational. So is that a fallacy? We hear a lot in our modern society about the ad hominem attacks. And the ad hominem fallacy is actually something very specific. The ad hominem fallacy is not just calling someone a name. I could call someone irrational without it being an ad hominem fallacy. Remember, fallacies are connected to arguments. And so if I'm saying Bruce Ware is an idiot, so reject all his arguments... Or if I'm saying Bruce Ware is irrational, so reject all his arguments, that would be a bad argument. But if I say, these are the reasons why Bruce Ware is irrational, look at all the irrational arguments he's making, therefore Bruce Ware is irrational, that's a logical argument. That's not an ad hominem fallacy. Another example, so people could kind of understand how the ad hominem fallacy works. If someone says, we should oppose national highways because Hitler was all in favor of national highways. Well, you're trying to discredit a belief based on a character of a person. That's a fallacy. In order to make something an ad hominem fallacy, the truth value of your conclusion is linked to the character of the person. Where there's no argument being made, there's no ad hominem fallacy. So like in a previous podcast, I claimed that Calvinists are not biblical scholars. That's not an ad hominem attack if I have specific points of evidence backing that up. If I have Calvinists rejecting every single text of the Bible, throwing it in the trash, and then replacing it with theology they bring to the text that's not even hinted in the text. Yeah, that makes someone's theology not biblical theology. So one other fallacy we need to be very familiar with is the fallacy of composition or the fallacy of parts. And Calvinists often resort to this when talking about God's future omniscience. They'll say, well, God knew Cyrus's name, and so God knows all future events. No, you can't do that. You can't just jump from one specific piece of evidence and just claim it over everything. If God knows one thing about the future, you need some sort of better rational argument to go from that to God knowing all things of the future. So usually how generalities work, how we get from specific instances to overriding principles, is you collect data. You know, let's say you're checking the color of cars to try to figure out what different colors cars are going to be, and then you're just, you write down all the different colors you see. Then you can make an informed decision or an informed conclusion about generally what do you think the attributes of the colors of cars are that we find in society. And sometimes even those generalities can be wrong because the data might not be conclusive. The data might not be entirely encompassing. Let's say like Ford, he produced the Model T and it was all in black. 
and you're counting all the Model Ts, and they're all in black, and you conclude that all cars are black. And someone might have just went and painted their car a different color. They might have painted it yellow, but because it's so rare, we might never have seen it. So even that generality, it might be generally true, but it's hard to go from very specific instances into some sort of absolute. So even generalities we need to take with a grain of salt and realize, you know, we just we can't come to concrete conclusions with 100% accuracy. It's hard to do. And that's probably why in human language, a lot of times that we resort to generalities, even when it's very concrete. And you say, well, Tim is the nicest guy I know. And, or Tim's very good, he's a great guy, he's the best father, or something like that. You know, usually, even with very concrete language, there's room for counterexamples without invalidating the overall rule. And here's where we stray into the fallacy of equivocation. And it, equivocation is using the same word differently in different contexts. So if your premise uses the word one way, or has multiple or ambiguous meanings, but then in your inference or conclusion, you're using it in a very concrete way that's not warranted by the original usage, then you're committing the fallacy of equivocation. So let's pretend the Bible had a verse that said, God is omniscient. Let's just pretend the Bible had that verse. It doesn't. But then a Calvinist comes to the text and says, see, it says God's omniscient. That means he has all past and future and present knowledge. No, it, Omniscient doesn't necessarily have to mean that definition, and that definition is probably imposed onto the text. And Calvinists actually run into this fallacy when they start talking about predestination and foreknowledge, and those words do not have to mean what they're trying to make those words mean. And in context, a lot of those contexts, it means the exact opposite of what they're trying to make it mean. Like in Romans, Romans is all about the Jews and the Gentiles and how different people groups interact. And then Calvinists take predestination and foreknowledge and they try to make it about individual specific salvation. Context does not warrant that. And that's using equivocation, trying to pretend that one definition should be preferred over others, where others are perfectly valid as well. Another thing Calvinists do, I just heard William Lane Craig do this in his recent podcast on open theism. He, it's the fallacy of definition. He says, by definition, God is omniscient, and so... Here's what that means. Really, what are you talking about? You could just will things into existence by definitions. You could just say, God is this word, and so this word has this defined meaning, and so that makes it true. Oof. Now, what are you doing there? It's just completely irrational. And William Lane Craig, and he's celebrated as some sort of like genius, theological scholar. What are you doing, guy? I would say that there are these true counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. Uh, that is to say, true hypothetical statements in the subjunctive mood about how we would freely choose if we were in a set of circumstances. And if those types of propositions are true or false, then as an omniscient being, God must know them. He has to know them. Mm -hmm because omniscience means to know only in all true propositions. So, if there are true counterfactual propositions, God must know them as an omniscient being. That's painful just to listen to. So just quickly summarizing so people kind of get an idea of what we talked about today. Arguments, their basic structure is a premise, 
an inference, and a conclusion. And taking down an argument, you could either attack the premise, the inference, or the conclusion. But overturning a premise or inference that does not affect the truth value of the conclusion, a conclusion be true or false, regardless of whether the premise and inferences are true and false. Where any of these statements are universals, if the premise is a universal, if the conclusion is a universal, all you have to do is present one counterexample and that entire premise or conclusion or inference, it falls. Because one counterexample undoes a universal truth, whereas if something's more flexible, one counterexample is not actually going to undo it. We need to avoid logical fallacies. We need to avoid the moralistic fallacy, just assuming what we want to be true is actually true. We need to also avoid the U2 fallacy, the two quote fallacy, saying, well, you believe the same thing. No, that just kind of just multiplies our problems and doesn't solve anything. And so we need to be addressing the real problems with arguments, the real logical fallacies, rather than trying to expose people as hypocrites and hope the problems just disappear. We need to be mindful of what ad hominem attacks are, or ad hominem fallacies, and how ad hominem fallacies are used. And they're usually used against like a certain person. So this person's a heretic and this person believes that, therefore their view about that is false. No, someone's character is independent of the truth value of any of their conclusions. We can't assume things are universal just because we find one example. We can't really go from specifics to generalities without a lot of evidence. And even if we do that, then the generalities are not necessarily absolute. And we have to avoid the fallacy of equivocation, changing word definitions halfway through an argument, or using words with vague meanings, whereas the truth value of what's being argued depends very heavily on a definitive meaning of that word, which multiple meanings could be allowed. So that's about as much time as we have for today. If you like this podcast, feel free to comment on the God is Open webpage, or go to our companion Facebook group, God is Open, and comment there, start a thread, we'd be happy to talk to you. Thank you for listening.